Just a quick note before we begin today. I uh, re-uploaded this episode because I was notified by a listener that um, there was an audio glitch around the two-minute mark in uh, in the last upload of the episode. And when I looked at it in the audio program, I could see that two segments of the audio had overlapped without me noticing. So I just re-uploaded the episode after fixing it. Enjoy. Hi and welcome to the history of Denmark. Episode 14, Eric of Pomerania. Hello everyone. Before we begin today, I would like to advertise the new Facebook page for the History of Denmark podcast. Liking this page is probably the best way to be notified of new episodes, and it is also a great place to view extra content. One example of this is some pictures I took when visiting the so-called Mountain of Heaven, one of the highest natural points in Denmark. The pictures give you an idea of Danish geography, which we covered in episode 11. The address for the page is very straightforward, facebook.com slash the history of Denmark. I have a few other short announcements to make as well. Firstly, I think I will have to reevaluate the interval at which I post episodes. Three weeks rather than two seems more realistic at this point, and in addition, I will have exams starting from the middle of May and lasting until the middle of June. Therefore, I will have to take a break from the podcast, but I will be sure to return to you during the summer. This is just another reason to like the Facebook page so you can be notified as soon as I return. Secondly, this episode was recorded on the 5th of May and will probably be out on the 6th, and the 5th of May marks the 71st year of the liberation of Denmark during World War II. On the evening of the 4th of May, it is custom to place lit candles in your windows. This symbolizes the reaction of the Danish people when they heard the message on the BBC that the German troops had surrendered. They immediately tore off the hated blackout curtains and placed lit candles in the windows. I will be sure to cover this in much more detail when we reach the end of the Second World War in Denmark, but I thought I should just mention the anniversary of this event. And to any Dutch listeners out there, happy Liberation Day. Now, let us begin. Last time, we finished off the impressive reign of Valdemar Adderday by covering his conflict with the Hanseatic League, which he unfortunately lost. However, his daughter Margaret managed to use the new Hanseatic influence to her advantage, as she stepped into the power vacuum left by the death of her father. By turning the Hansa against Sweden, she gained their support as regent for her young son Olaf. This child inherited Norway from his father, uniting Denmark and Norway. When Olaf died young, Margaret continued to stay in power and took custody of her grandnephew Bugislav, who was made Eric VII. The end result of her ambition was the conquest of Sweden from the Mecklenburgian Albrecht, and thus the creation of a new political entity, the Kalmar Union. We left off at the coronation of Eric in 1397, and today we will see how his new country fared during the reign of the last Eric to rule Denmark. As I said at the end of the last episode, we will start by looking at two documents produced at the meeting in Kalmar Castle during the summer of 1397. The first is the coronation document of Eric of Pomerania, and the second is the Letter of Union. 
These will give us some insight into the peculiar institution that the Kalmar Union was. The coronation document starts off by listing many of the important nobles and clergymen who attended the meeting. These then confirm the crowning of Eric as king of all three Scandinavian countries, and they pledge fealty to him and Margaret. They promised that their loyalty would extend beyond the death of their king, meaning that he was essentially granted the right to freely appoint a successor. Finally, it is said of the regency of Margaret that, quote, She has acted towards and associated with us all these three kingdoms, and has ruled these aforementioned realms in such a way that all we who build and live in these aforementioned realms level no accusations against her, but wish that God may grant her heaven. End quote. In essence, she is praised for her good governance during her first 22 years in power. The other document, the Letter of Union, is probably the more interesting, but at the same time it is more mysterious. It seems to be a sort of draft for a resolution which might never have been approved. For this reason, the importance and scope of the letter has been debated. In any case, Margaret and Eric had concentrated enough power in their own hands that the adoption of the letter of union might not even have been necessary. Now, what does it say? Well, the three most important articles state the procedure for future royal elections, the relationship of the Kalmar Union towards foreign countries, and the safeguarding of peace between the three Scandinavian countries themselves. In addition, there are also interesting remarks on trade and economic activity within the Union. On the future of royal elections, it is said, quote, Firstly, these three realms shall now have this king, who is King Eric, in his lifetime and henceforth until the end of time, have one king, and not several, of all three realms, so that the realms will never be divided again, if God wills it. End quote. This reinforces the pledge of loyalty made in the coronation document ensuring that Margaret and Eric can decide succession as they please. It is also said that out of many sons, a single one shall succeed as king of the Union, while the others receive minor lordships within it. In the case that one realm is attacked by a foreign country, the countries of the Union are to be regarded as one. I guess the Kalmar Union can be best compared to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. War between the three Scandinavian countries is also forbidden in the letter. It is important to stress that the Kalmar Union did not dissolve the old Scandinavian countries, but was more of an alliance between them. This is shown in the following quote, where I skip over some of the filler words to make it easier to understand. Quote, the king in Denmark shall rule his realm in accordance with what is law and custom, and likewise in Sweden and Norway after their law and custom, and no law or custom shall be carried out by one realm in another, when the latter has not previously had this law or custom there. The king and each realm shall preserve its own law and custom." End quote. So in summary, each country in the Union will get to preserve its own laws. Some practices did cover all the countries though. For instance, if one was declared an outlaw in one country, he would have the same status in the others. As I mentioned earlier, there were also economic reforms. The citizens of the Union were granted the right to conduct trade and own property across the borders of the realms, which was probably also in the interest of the nobles, many of whom either owned property in several of the countries or could potentially inherit lands from other realms. The mutual defense agreement and banning of wars between Denmark, Norway and Sweden probably aimed to put up a united front against Albrecht of Mecklenburg, who still had a strong claim to at least the Kingdom of Norway. 
Remember that Eric's claim was based on a council of nobles deciding that the Mecklenburgian was disqualified due to traditional hostilities with the duchy. But Albrecht had a much stronger dynastic connection with Hokon VI than Eric did. Speaking of Albrecht and moving on, the year after the meeting at Kalmar, the three-year agreement forced on the former Swedish king expired. He was therefore forced to surrender Stockholm to Margaret and Eric and retreat to his duchy of Mecklenburg. In addition, the economy was growing steadily. Margaret had more and more money to spend, and she chose to focus on her father's last course, buying back the lands in Schleswig, which had been sold off to the rich houses of Holstein. She also utilized the more relaxed laws on owning property across the internal borders of the Kalmar Union to grant lands to her Danish supporters in Sweden and Norway, further tying the countries together and strengthening her position. She was also very lucky in the endeavor of reacquiring Schleswigian lands, since Count Gerhard VI of Holstein and 200 knights were all killed trying to quell some independently minded peasants. His widow chose to seek help from Margaret and Eric, who provided her with loans in exchange for control of the lands in Schleswig. The local bishop also gravitated towards Denmark, and granted control of his holdings to Margaret as well. In 1404, Eric VII became an adult, and Margaret had looked around Europe for a suitable marriage for her young grandnephew. After years of negotiations, an agreement was finally reached with King Henry IV of England. In 1405, his daughter Philippa was sent by ship to Norway, where Eric was to pick her up. Due to bad weather, Eric arrived the year after, and the couple traveled to Lund in Scania, where they celebrated their marriage. During the visit to Norway, the young Eric also got some political training, as he presided over legal cases and decided what should happen to unoccupied administrative posts. He spent the rest of 1406 traveling around Jutland with his council. Here they made sure that the property of smaller peasants was not illegally bought up by the larger landowners. If you recall, this would mean that the land would become tax-exempt, and so the crown naturally wanted to avoid this. They also checked that the privileged landowners could prove their lineage as descendants of knights or nobles, and if they could not do this, they were demoted to mere peasants, and thus forced to pay taxes like anyone else. While Eric was busy traveling and getting married, Margaret had negotiated with the Teutonic Order for control of the island of Gotland. The Order had taken it from the pirate band known as the Victual Brothers, and Margaret had not been able to recapture it. In 1407, however, she managed to secure a deal whereby Denmark would once again gain control of Gotland, in exchange for 9,000 English gold coins. The Danish hold on the island had been shaky since Valdemar Adderday first captured it in 1361, but now it would more or less remain in the hands of Denmark until 1645, when it definitively became a Swedish possession once more. As we just covered, Margaret and Eric focused on reacquiring possessions in Schleswig from 1404 onwards, but this would lead to conflict starting in 1409. The widow of the Count of Holstein had begun to worry about the growing power of the Kalmar Union, and so she shifted her allegiance to her brother-in-law, Heinrich, who had returned from his bishopric in Osnabrück to rule in his brother's place. This resulted in Eric putting forth the demand that Heinrich and the widow of his brother surrender the city of Flensburg along with a nearby castle to Denmark. The noble houses of Holstein now saw that there was no stopping the ambitions of their northern neighbors, and they decided to make a stand. After they took the bishop of Schleswig prisoner, 
and forced him to surrender his castles to them, conflict with the Kalmar Union was inevitable. From 1410 to 1411, Danish armies attacked several of the castles which had fallen into the hands of the Counts of Holstein, but with little success. A couple of castles were retaken, but often the army was simply repelled by the defenders. A five-year truce was agreed to, which more or less reinforced the status quo. Flensburg and the property of the Bishop of Schleswig would be returned to Denmark, while control of the rest of the lands would be decided by a commission of nobles from Denmark and Schleswig. If they could not agree, the issue would be settled by the German Emperor. However, the truce did not last. In 1412, Flensburg was taken by Holstein and the negotiations were resumed. Margaret herself arrived at the scene to settle the issue once and for all, but unfortunately she died suddenly on the 28th of October. The cause of death was most likely plague, which still showed its ugly face now and again. By sharing power with Eric, she had paved the way for a smooth succession. Margaret I is remembered as one of the greatest politicians in Danish history, especially in regards to her achievement of creating the Kalmar Union. She was buried in Roskilde Cathedral after a lavish ceremony, which many foreign dignitaries attended. I will put some pictures of her sarcophagus as well as other depictions of her on the website. The current Queen of Denmark, Margaret II, does not actually take her name from Margaret I, but rather from Princess Margaret of Great Britain, the granddaughter of Queen Victoria and grandmother to Margaret II. Shortly after the death of his great-aunt, Eric decided to call the first Dane court in a long time. Here he put forth the claim that Schleswig belonged to him, as the widow of Count Gerhard VI had broken her oath of fealty to him. In accordance with the law of Zealand, the attendees at the Dane court agreed with the king. In order to properly secure the legitimacy of a military expedition into Schleswig, Eric appealed to Emperor Sigismund of Germany, who was his cousin, and asked him to decide the case. The Emperor recognized the breach of the feudal contract which Holstein had committed, and so Eric could invade. He issued a special war tax across the Kalmar Union in order to raise funds for his army once the truce with Holstein expired. Eric secured the neutrality of the city of Lübeck by helping the old merchant council get back into power, and in 1416 he went straight for the city of Schleswig, after securing the strategic island of Fehmarn. Schleswig was put under siege, but losses elsewhere forced the king to withdraw, and during the fall, the Germans retook Fehmarn. The year after, the city of Schleswig fell to a Danish attack, but Holstein made an alliance with Hamburg by giving privileges to the city, allowing the Germans to take other parts of Schleswig as the Danes advanced. Erik was annoyed by this lack of progress, and he focused once more on the island of Fehmarn, capturing it in 1420 and brutally pillaging it. Afterwards, he asked the three assemblies of the Kalmar Union to recognize that lands granted by the king were to be returned to the crown upon the death of the noble who had received the title in question. This concession would be used as an argument against the Holsteinian claim on the lands in Schleswig, which were disputed. In order to settle the conflict once and for all, Eric traveled to his cousin, Emperor Sigismund, whose residence was modern-day Budapest, the capital of Hungary. He pleaded his case before the emperor, who judged in favor of his cousin. Holstein had no claim on Schleswig, which was a Danish province, and not a feudal possession of Holstein. 
With this victory in the back, Eric left for a pilgrimage to the Holy Land as a sign of gratitude to the Emperor, leaving his wife Philippa in charge of running the Kalmar Union. Now, when Eric of Pomerania returns from his journey in 1426, he will enact a very controversial and historically important law, so it is worth looking back a few years to gain an understanding of what is to come. The law in question is the sound due, which I mentioned in episode 11. In one fell swoop, the toll on ships passing between Zealand and Scania was quadrupled, enraging the Hanseatic League and leading to war with the merchant cities. The reason for the new toll was that the European trading ships had grown in size, and there was now a tendency to bypass the Scanian market and sail directly to the trading cities in the Baltic Sea. The Sound Dew was enacted to counter this development. Ships would now have to pay up as they passed a castle built by Eric, named Kron, which means the Hook. This castle would be upgraded to Kronborg, meaning Crown Castle, in the 1500s, and after a fire destroyed much of it in the 1600s, it was rebuilt in its modern form. Kronborg Castle is famously the location where William Shakespeare's play Hamlet takes place, though it is known as Elsinore in that context. Kronborg is located on the very tip of Zealand, where the sound is the narrowest, making it the ideal place to charge merchant ships. There was also a castle on the other side of the sound to secure the strait completely. In the year 2000, the castle was added to UNESCO's list of World Heritage Sites, and is today a popular tourist attraction. It is also common for the Crown Prince couple to give foreign heads of state a tour of the castle. For instance, this happened recently with the President of Mexico and his wife. One final remark about Kronborg Castle concerns its basement. Below there is a statue of Holger Danske, or as he is known in English, Ogier the Dane. I considered mentioning him in the episode on the Viking Age, but I chose to postpone it in order to make a throwback at this time. Ogier the Dane is a legendary figure mentioned in European chronicles and poems written during the Middle Ages. We first learn of him as a minor character in a French poem written around the year 1060. Here he appears as one of Charlemagne's knights, raised at his court as a hostage. In the 1200s, the French minstrel Adené Le Roi wrote a poem starring Ogier as the main character. Here he eventually fights for Charlemagne against the Muslims. This poem is based on a less comprehensive work by an earlier French poet. Interestingly, he was not known in Scandinavia until the 1400s, but once the old French Chanson de Geste, meaning Song of the Heroic Deeds, was translated into Nordic languages, the knowledge and popularity of Augur the Dane spread. In addition to starring in Danish reboots of the old medieval stories in the 1500s, he is also depicted on the walls of two churches in Denmark and Sweden from the 15th and 16th centuries. Something interesting I found out while researching the origins of Ogier the Dane was that the so-called Sword of Mercy used in the coronation of British monarchs was the property of Ogier, according to legend. He supposedly got it from Tristan, one of the Knights of the Round Table and servant to King Arthur of England, and it eventually ended up in the hands of Henry III of England. Now to return to the statue of Ogier the Dane beneath Kronborg Castle, he fits the trope of a king in the mountain, a national figure who will rise to defend his country if it is ever endangered. Other examples of this are Frederick Barbarossa, who sleeps in Küffhäuser, and the last emperor of the Byzantine Empire, Constantine XI, also known as the Marble King, 
who will one day return to liberate Constantinople for the Greeks. During World War II, the largest resistance group in Denmark named itself Holger Danske, in reference to Akia the Dane. On the website, I have also added pictures of Kronborg Castle, the famous statue of Akia the Dane in the basement, and a Renaissance depiction of him in a Danish church. Now, we were really supposed to be looking back at the events leading up to the introduction of the sound due. I want to go back to 1422 and look at a law whose name can be roughly translated as the Market Town Regulation, known in Danish as the Kupstads Forordning of 1422. In it, the privileges of Danish merchants are emphasized by demanding that foreign merchants use Danish middlemen when selling their goods. This law especially affected the Hanseatic League, which was greatly annoyed. It also helped along the development of a Danish middle class, consisting of merchants. Another topic covered by the regulation was how the cities of the realm were to be run. It specified that there should be two mayors and six to twelve members of a city council, all of whom were to be elected by the merchants of the city in question. Each city would also have a royal bailiff as well as assistants assigned to it, which would act as a police force and local judicial authority. In addition to this regulation, the king also managed to get the word of the national councils that Copenhagen, the largest merchant city in the realm, would no longer be subject to the Bishop of Roskilde, but instead to the king himself. Another economic development which played a role in the introduction of the Soundtube was the ongoing currency war with the Hanseatic League. The Crown of Denmark made coins which were worth less than what was claimed, in order to keep the trade flowing. If the value had corresponded to what the coins should be worth, the inflation which took place across Europe would lead to people beginning to hoard coins instead of spending them. In addition, this was a way for the king to make some more money. As long as the merchants accepted the Danish coins which were less valuable than what was claimed, Denmark could buy more goods for a lower price. Lübeck in particular was irritated by this, and they responded in 1403 by introducing a forced exchange rate between Danish and Lübeckian coins. Queen Margaret, however, responded the year after by mandating that the taxes on the Scanian market were to be paid in Lübeckian coins, nullifying the intended effect of the exchange rate. During the regency of Queen Philippa, while Eric was in the Holy Land, a new strategy was tried. An agreement was made with Lübeck to create a common currency between the merchant cities and the Kalmar Union, and a universal exchange rate with the old coins of two old coins to one new. When her husband returned, however, he introduced the Soundtube, and this led to the breakdown of the agreement. A new economic war began, one that would spill over into real military conflict the year after the Soundtube was instituted. In 1427, after their protests had fallen on deaf ears, the cities of the Hanseatic League decided on an all-out war with the Kalmar Union. They entered into the still-brewing conflict between Holstein and Denmark over Schleswig, on the side of Holstein. They first attacked Flensburg, but failed completely as the young Count of Holstein was killed in the attack. The next attempt was a naval attack in the Baltic Sea from Lübeck, but the Kalmar fleet defeated the expedition. This meant that a fleet of Hanseatic ships, which arrived shortly after, was defenseless, and Eric captured these, discovering that they were loaded with precious salt from Biscay. The next development occurred two years later, when a force funded by money from Lübeck took the city of Obenroh in southern Denmark. 
Hanseatic privateers also attacked Copenhagen and Helsingør, as well as conquering Bergen in Norway and plundering it. Ships carrying tax revenue from Sweden were also attacked, and Erik decided to respond by dividing his enemies. He made a separate peace with the cities of Rostock and Stralsund, and gave Bremen special privileges in Nordic trade. However, it was not enough, as troops from Holstein managed to take Flensburg in 1431, and later starved out the defenders of the nearby castle. Thus, in 1432, Erik of Pomerania was back where Margaret I had started, in terms of the dispute over Schleswig. He signed a five-year truce with the Hanseatic League and granted them their old privileges back. In reality, the merchant cities were exempt from the sound due throughout the 1400s, but it will nonetheless become relevant later in our story. Today, we have covered the first 35 years of Eric of Pomerania's reign, although Margaret was in charge for the first 15 of those. We looked at the documents produced at the meeting in Kalmar following Eric's coronation in 1397, which outlined the structure of the Kalmar Union. We also covered a long-running dispute with the nobles of Holstein over the Duchy of Schleswig. The Hanseatic League played their part as the traditional thorn in the side of the Danish king, and Eric eventually had to give up his sound due. Next time we will follow the Kalmar Union as internal strife erupts following the death of the Swedish Archbishop of Uppsala. If you like this podcast, check out the website at www.thehistoryofdenmark.wordpress.com where you can see the pictures related to this episode or the new Facebook page, facebook.com slash thehistoryofdenmark which is the best place to be notified of new episodes and extra material. Thank you for listening to The History of Denmark and bye for now.